Ship Show. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation, to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome back, everybody. I am doing another podcast from London. This is my last night here. I am returning back to Connecticut tomorrow, so I wanted to get one last podcast in. By the way, I'm going to give a shout out to the wonderful staff here at Grosvenor's House Suites the hotel my wife and I have been staying at here in Mayfair. It's really more like an apartment. We have a two-bedroom condominium, but we have an excellent hotel staff that has really gone above and beyond for us. So we had a great time here. If anybody is looking for a nice place to stay while they're in London, you should check out the Grosvenor House Suites. Also want to update everybody on um, my Twitter saga. On the last podcast, I went over how my Twitter account got hacked along with my uh, my email and my cell phone. Well, I have recovered both of those, but I am still absent from Twitter. Maybe some of you have noticed that I haven't been tweeting, and that's because I still have not been able to regain any access to my Twitter account. Now, the person who hacked it, they can't get access either, so you don't have to worry about any fraud. You're just not going to get anything from me. So in the meantime, maybe by tomorrow when I get back to Connecticut, if I'm still not back on Twitter, and you know, I really, you know, it's like I miss it. You don't realize how much you miss something until you don't have it because I kind of have gotten used to venting on Twitter. You know, when I read something uh, that, you know, I want to comment on, I, I fire out a tweet. I can't do that, you know, because I don't even have access to the platform right now. But what I'm going to start doing is posting those comments on my Facebook page and on my Instagram. So a lot of people don't follow me on Facebook or Instagram. I only have a little over 100,000 followers on each of those platforms. 
Whereas I have almost a million or I had almost a million. I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe I'm not going to get my account back, but I had almost a million on Twitter. So a lot of people are following me on Twitter, but they're not following me on Facebook or Instagram. So you may want to do that uh, today or you know, tomorrow morning because I might start you know, commenting more on those platforms since I have no ability to comment at all on the uh, on the Twitter platform. But it is kind of amazing that it's really taking so long for me to get back access. The latest sticking point apparently is I don't even know the email address that is associated with my Twitter account because I've been using my personal email address for so long that I thought that that was the one that it was linked to. But I think now because they don't recognize it, I actually set up my Twitter account during my 2010 shift for Senate campaign around mid 2009. That's when I first started. And I think it was somebody who was working on my campaign who actually signed me up because I think prior to running for the Senate, I wasn't even using Twitter as a platform. And so somebody signed me up and maybe they used one of the old campaign email addresses. And because that was the address that was originally associated with the account, uh, they're not able to verify that it's me and because there's no people there. You know, you can't call a person at Twitter. It's all, you know, filling out a ticket online. And basically, they close the ticket. If I try to open up another ticket, they basically automatically reject it. They basically told me that there's nothing that can be done. Uh, and they just suggest that I open up a brand new account and start all over from scratch with zero followers. So, you know, I'd rather not do that. It took me like 14 years to get to the million followers. I don't want to, you know, go all the way back to go, uh, you know, without collecting my $200. So hopefully uh, Twitter will figure out how to reinstate me. But again, in the meantime, you can try those other platforms because I'm going to have to vent over there. Now, I want to start off uh, today's podcast, though, by continuing on something I spoke about on my last podcast because I talked about a lot of the uh, ways that I think the government should be cutting back on spending since you know they decided not to. And since I recorded that last podcast, um, we have had the uh, Fiscal Responsibility Act. I mean, I hate to even use those words in describing such a reckless, irresponsible act as the one that was just signed under the headline of fiscal responsibility. But again, that is typical for Washington to name a bill the opposite of what the bill actually uh, results in. And so from that perspective, it's the perfect name for such a reckless and irresponsible uh, bill. But now President Biden has signed it. And so it is law. And so at the moment, as we speak, there is no debt ceiling. The debt ceiling has been completely suspended. So it's like it doesn't even exist. And so Congress can now borrow as much money as it wants without any limit. Welcome to the world of fiscal responsibility. But on my podcast, I talked about cutting entitlements because entitlements are pretty much off the table uh, whenever cuts are discussed, uh, as well as national defense. And in fact, national defense was actually increased. We increased defense spending by about 3%. Not like we weren't spending enough on defense 
during a time of supposed austerity, we still managed to increase the bloated defense budget by 3%. But I only spoke really about Social Security, Medicare, and that was it. And so there were some comments on my uh, the, the YouTube channel. And again, I do read these comments, so make them. You know, I don't, I don't read them all, of course. There's far too many. Uh, but I do, you know, look through them. But there were some comments and people wanted to know, well, why am I just talking about Social Security and Medicare? Is that all I want to cut, right? And, and plus, you know, that seems like I'm heartless because I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, take money away from seniors. <laughs> and I'm actually trying to preserve money for seniors because I recognize if we don't make the substantial cuts to government spending, seniors are going to be destroyed more than anybody by inflation. There is no way that senior citizens are going to get paid what they've been promised. It is impossible. I know that because inflation is going to destroy the value of their benefits. You know, my father used to talk to me about a uh, quote that he read and he, he included it in The Biggest Con. If you can get a copy of The Biggest Con, I don't even have The Biggest Cons. You know, at, at, at shiftbooks.com, I've been selling uh, The Federal Mafia. And by the way, I recently signed quite a few of those. So if you had ordered one uh, and you're waiting to get it, it was probably because I didn't have them and I, ha I wanted to sign them. So they've been signed. And by the way, again, anybody who orders a copy of my father's book, uh, The Federal Mafia, I'm selling these books. Uh, because I want people to understand my father's rationale for why he believes the U.S. income tax is unconstitutional and why he personally decided not to pay it. But I sell these books with the caveat that I am not recommending that anybody who reads these books follow his advice. So I'm not saying buy the federal mafia so you can stop paying income taxes the way my father uh, did or the way my father encouraged people to. I'm saying keep paying income taxes. Try your best to minimize your taxes based on what is you know, perceived to be uh, the, the legal way, you know, the way that your accountant or your tax attorney might advise you. So try to pay as little tax as the law provides, but do not follow the advice in uh, the biggest con. I mean, in, in uh, the federal mafia. But I think it's an excellent read. And I think my father makes some very good points about the illegal manner uh, in which the, the government enforces the income tax. But getting back to the biggest con, which is purely about economics, and my father wrote that book you know, before he started his crusade against uh, the income tax, but he actually reproduced in the federal mafia an excerpt from the congressional record. And if you don't know what the congressional record is, it, it, it basically records all of the discussions that take place in Congress, all of the debates among the senators, this was the Senate record, you know, when they are uh, deliberating about legislation. And so my father reproduced a quote from Senator William Proxmire, who was a pretty big senator in his day. And they were discussing Social Security and what to do about a Social Security problem. And Senator Proxmire said, and it was recorded in the congressional record and reproduced in The Biggest Con,
He said that Social Security benefits will be paid. No matter what, they're going to be paid. The United States government, you know, has the power to print money, and we will exercise that power to make sure that every dime that was promised to Social Security recipients will be paid. I mean, I don't remember those exact words. I mean, I'd have to get the book, but something to that extent. But this is the most important part. This is how Proxmire finished that quote. He said, Social Security benefits may not be worth anything when the recipients receive them, but those benefits will be paid. Now, that is a startling admission to be made by a United States senator. And of course, he was very prescient and he made that statement decades too early because you're going back to the 1970s. But you have a U.S. senator saying, admitting, we don't have the guts to uh, you know, cut spending. We're not going to tell Social Security recipients they can't get their money. So we are going to print as much money as we have to so that we don't have to tell them the truth. But he then at least had the foresight and the guts to admit that the payments may be worthless. Why were they going to be worthless? Because of inflation. Because they were going to have to print so much money to meet those Social Security obligations that the Social Security payments would in fact be worthless to the recipients. Now, of course, that statement has much broader implications than Social Security payments being worthless. Because if Social Security payments are worthless, then everything is worthless, right? Because they're just dollars. It's not that the Social Security checks are worthless. It's that the dollars that you receive when you cash those checks, they're worthless. And so if the dollar is worthless, everybody gets wiped out. Not just people on Social Security, anybody who owns treasuries, anybody who's got a pension, all sorts of people will be wiped out by all the money that has to be printed in order to make good on these obligations. So I care about the senior citizens. I want to take the appropriate actions to preserve the real value of their benefits. And the only way to do that is by cutting them. Anyway, I'm going to get back to this uh, after the, this break, this commercial break. So stick around. We'll be right back. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Okay, I'm talking about the cuts that are necessary to preserve the value of the U.S. dollar to make sure that at least, you know, people who continue to get Social Security get something of value and do not end up with worthless dollars the way Senator William Proxmire warned back in the 
1970. So my my idea was to means test it, not just based on income, but based on assets, so that only the people that are really dependent, that really need Social Security. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that actually need it. That wouldn't be the case if we didn't have it. You know, had the government never had Social Security, the people who now need it probably would be self-sufficient because had they had all that income to invest while they were working, instead of being forced to give it to the government that squandered it on a Ponzi scheme, but if most Americans who are 65 today, if they didn't have to pay the payroll tax and they didn't have to pay the other half of the payroll tax through their employer that was really deducted from their wages, had they had all that money, they could have built up their own retirement account and they would be self-sufficient and they wouldn't need the government. But because the government taxed them to death when they were working, they're now dependent on the government when they retire. But for the people who don't need Social Security, they shouldn't get it. They shouldn't get a nickel of it. We have to eliminate it. And then even the people who need it, unfortunately, probably can't get as much as they were promised. But I'd like to be able to give them something. But at the same time, I'd like to let the current generation off the hook and and get rid of the payroll tax entirely. But that's a topic for another podcast. And I I really don't want to get into that one today. I just want to talk about spending. But the other point I wanted to make based on looking at the comments from last podcast is what else do I want to cut? Like the only thing I want to do is take away Social Security and Medicare. Oh, no, no. (laughs) I want to cut everything. I don't want to just cut entitlements. I want to cut across the board. So I thought I'd go over just some of the things I wanted to cut because I I pulled up a list of all the federal agencies. Right now, there's 15 departments of government. 15. I'd like to get rid of 10 of them. I'd like to basically narrow it down so that we only have five uh, departments left in government. And basically, I'm going to look them up. I got them here. Uh, on the internet. So we have the State Department, which was established in 1789. I'm willing to keep that, right? State Department's been around since 1789. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, they approved of the State Department. So who am I to argue? We're going to keep the State Department. I want to keep the Treasury Department, even though they've done an awful job. In fact, we don't even really have a Treasury Department anymore. We have a Debt Department because all we have is debt. In fact, they should rename the Secretary of the Treasury to the Secretary of the Debt, right? Because the Treasury is bare. And the job of the Secretary of the Treasury is to sell debt, is to, is to get people to loan us more money so that we can pay back the money that we've already borrowed, right? It's a you know perpetual Ponzi scheme. That's why I always joked that the, the most qualified person for Secretary of Treasury uh, was, was Bernie Madoff. Although he's dead now, so, uh, you know, although who knows, maybe a dead Bernie Madoff would still be better than a living Janet Yellen. But, you know, another person potentially who could be Secretary of the Treasury, I'm not sure if he's going to go to jail or not, uh, but he certainly might be qualified for this job, although he didn't get away with his scheme anywhere near as long as as Bernie Madoff. And that's, um, what's his name? Bankman Freed, you know, maybe we should make him the next Secretary of the Treasury. But anyway, I want to keep the Secretary 
I want to keep the Treasury Department. We actually need it to help, you know, in my mind, you know, repay and restructure all this debt, right? You know, so we can actually get back to having an actual Treasury. So I'm going to keep that. The Defense Department, yes, I want to keep that. That's also one of the not original departments. It came around in 1947. I, I mean, although we had a War Department initially, so maybe. Uh, maybe that's why, because it was renamed. It, you, I mean, they used to really call it what it was, right? A war department, right? That's what it was for. It was about war. Uh, but I guess somebody didn't like that name because it sounded too aggressive. And so we, we renamed it as a defense department. Uh, but I would keep that. You know, maybe we should go back to the war department to let people know that that's really what it's about. But anyway, I would keep the defense department. Now you've got the justice department. Now that one came around in 1870. So we went, we went a long time in this country without a Justice Department, right? We didn't have one until 1870. So we probably could get by without a Justice Department, but I'm willing to keep it. Even though, you know, my father used to call it the Injustice Department, I think we can reform it, but I, I'm okay with the Justice Department. Now, that's basically it. Now, here's the rest of the departments. There's a Department of Interior, a Department of Agriculture, and a Department of Commerce. The Interior Department was started in 1849, Agriculture, 1862, and Commerce, 1903. Look, maybe we can combine all three of these departments into one, although I really don't think the government should have much to do with agriculture. I mean, mostly what the Agriculture Department does is pay farmers not to grow food, right? I mean, so what's the point of that? I mean, we would have more agriculture if we didn't have a Department of Agriculture. I mean, we don't need it. I mean, farmers can farm without having to coordinate it through the government. So to the extent that we took some of the Department of Agriculture's, you know, policies and implement them through the interior, it would be a very slimmed down version. And the same thing with commerce. I mean, commerce, you know, that's about the interior. I mean, throw commerce in the interior. But again, most of what the Commerce Department does is illegal anyway. It's a violation of the Constitution. So I want to get rid of almost everything that the, the Department of Commerce does anyway. But think about the Commerce Department employs 41,000 people. The Department of Agriculture employs 100,000 people. And the Department of the Interior employs 70,000 people. I mean, I pretty much want to get rid of almost everybody there. I mean, I think we can handle it, the whole thing, maybe 100 people, based on what I think they should do. I mean, most of these jobs are going to get eliminated. Same thing, even though I said we should keep the Justice Department, I don't think we need 113,000 employees. And by the way, the Defense Department employs better than 3 million people. Right? I don't think we need to have a standing army anywhere near that big. In fact, I'd like to get rid of the troops uh, from places like Europe. We got a lot of American troops still here in Europe. I mean, you know, the, wor the world wars are over. I mean, you know, it, the Cold War is gone. I mean, we're trying to resurrect it somehow, but obviously we don't need uh, this big a standing army. Uh, so I would make some cuts there, but I want to get rid of these departments. Now you got the Labor Department. The Labor Department didn't come around until 1913, right? So the country was around for like 140 years. We didn't have a labor department. People worked, right? We had uh, all these people coming to America. My grandparents, when they came here, there was no Department of Labor. They all came here and worked. They had no problem finding jobs. You had all the immigrants coming to America uh, by the tens of millions, uh, 1880, 1890, 1900, right? All these factories were being set up. 
Uh, we were transforming the economy from a, a, an agricultural, agrarian economy to an industrial economy, right? All these jobs were changing. There was no Department of Labor. Get rid of it and the 15,000 people that are working there. Health and Human Services, you know, first of all, that department started in 1953. And I don't think we need that. I mean, 65,000 people. Again, I want to get the U.S. government out of health care. So I think, you know, getting rid of that department is a pretty good start. Housing and Urban Development, HUD, what a disaster HUD has created with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I mean, HUD has really screwed up the housing market. We don't need it. I want to get rid of that department. 9,000 employees, get rid of them. We won't have to pay them. We don't need the government to get involved in housing. The government's not building the houses. All they're doing is making it more expensive for the private sector to build them, to build those houses. They're getting in the way. They're doing a lot of harm. And we didn't even have a Department of Housing and Urban Development until 1965, right? So we, we had all sorts of housing in this country before 1965. We had really developed the urban areas and we did it without a Department of Housing and Urban Development. We don't need it. Get rid of it. We're broke. We can't afford it. I got a, I got a commercial. We'll be right back. And I'm going to talk about some more government agencies that I want to get rid of. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, I am going over the long list of U.S. departments that I want to eliminate to save money, right? But it's a twofer because not only do we get to save money by getting rid of all these departments and all their employees, including the cabinet members. Remember, the president's cabinet consists of the heads of all these various departments. So if I had my way, the department would be whittled down to just five people, right? I want to get rid of, you know, 75% of these government departments. So the next on the hit list is the transportation department. Now this transportation department was established in 1967, right? So the country had almost been around for 200 years by 1967. Don't you think we had transportation systems before 1967? We had plenty of roads, we had trains, we had planes, I mean, We had a very intricate transportation system. Um, You know, we probably had a better railway system than the one we have now, probably, although it it really started to deteriorate around earlier. But we probably had a better rail system uh, back then. But I would argue that our transportation systems were probably better. And they would be even better still had we never made the mistake of setting up a Department of Transportation. Right. The, the, the transportation department is probably making transportation more difficult and more expensive. So what do we need it for? We don't. And again, there's nothing in the Constitution that says the federal government should do anything with respect to transportation or health care or labor or any of these things uh, where we now have entire departments dedicated for stuff 
that the U.S. government constitutionally has no authority to be involved in. So let's get rid of the Department of Transportation. That's 55,000 jobs that we can eliminate. Now, again, I'm not heartless. They, hey, I want to fire these 55,000 people. No, I want to free them up to actually do something productive. I want to get them off the taxpayers' dole. Because all these government workers, the taxpayers have to pay their salaries. We're broke. We don't want to pay their salaries. But the problem is a lot of these government workers are not making our lives better. If the transportation department, if their sole goal is to make transportation less efficient and more expensive, then why do we need to pay 55,000 people to screw up our transportation system? How about if we leave the transportation system to the free market so it can be better, cheaper, right? And we take these 55,000 people that were wasting their time. In fact, they were actually using their time to screw up the rest of us. Let's free them up to actually get productive jobs where the country might actually benefit from their labor. Because to the extent that you get a job in the private sector, you wouldn't get that job unless you were adding value to the private sector. You can actually get a government job even though you're destroying value to the public sector because the government doesn't give a damn and it doesn't have to generate a profit. It can just tax the public to pay for workers that screw up the public's life. The private sector can't do that. They can only hire workers that benefit the public because they have to help them produce products that are better and cheaper so that the public voluntarily wants to buy them. So let's free up all these workers uh, to do something productive and get rid of the Department of Transportation. Next is the Department of Energy. Want to get rid of that one. That was started in 1977. So we were more than 200 years in this country without a Department of Energy. We had plenty of energy. It's not like we didn't get energy until 1977. And this was started uh, by um, Jimmy Carter, right? So if you think we need a Department of Energy, then you must think Jimmy Carter was a great president because he's the guy that came up with it. And why did they come up with the Department of Energy? Well, because of the Arab oil embargo. And they said, we need to be less dependent on foreign oil. Well, you know, we're actually more dependent on it now than we were back then. So we've actually achieved the opposite of the goal of the Department of Energy. And by the way, the Department of Energy doesn't produce a single barrel of oil, right? We don't have more energy because we have a Department of Energy. If anything, we have less. So let's get rid of it. In fact, when Ronald Reagan campaigned in 1980, one of his platforms was eliminating the Department of Energy. Well, let's keep that campaign promise. Reagan wasn't able to keep it, but I'd like to. And so let's get rid of the Department of Energy, free up another 10,000 government workers to get honest jobs, and let's have more energy, right? So we save money and we get more energy, right? What could be better? The next, the Department of Education. Now, the Department of Education used to be part, I think, of health, human services, education. I mean, it was part of another uh, agency or they, they, they broke it apart and they made it its own department in... 1979. Let's get rid of that department. Complete waste of money. 4,200 jobs. The Department of Education doesn't educate anybody. In fact, it screws up the education for just about everybody. It's a complete waste of money. There's nothing in the Constitution 
that says the federal government should have any role in education, let alone an entire department dedicated to screwing up education. So let's get rid of it. And by the way, look at how expensive education is right now, thanks to the Department of Education. Before we had the government involvement in education, which started before they devoted an entire department to education, education was cheap. I mean, it wasn't. And, you know, if you graduated from high school, that meant something. I mean, hardly anybody needed a college degree. I mean, if you wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer, you went to college. But for pretty much any other white collar job, a high school degree pretty much was all you needed. Now, a high school degree is worthless. In fact, a college degree is practically worthless, even though it costs like hundreds of thousands of dollars to get one. I mean, only the government can take something like a college degree, render it worthless, but at the same time, make it so expensive, right? Because now, I mean, what are you gonna do with a college degree? Everybody's got one. You gotta go to get a master's degree. You gotta get, you know, a doctorate to actually stand out now when everybody and their brother has a college degree and they have all kinds of Mickey Mouse majors now. You don't even really need to know much to get a college degree. They just hand them out like popcorn. Uh, But all this is the Department of Education. So it's been a complete waste It's helped destroy American education. We were a much better educated nation before we had a Department of Education, and we didn't spend nearly as much money or waste nearly as much money on an educational bureaucracy. So get rid of the Department of Education. Now, the Department of Veterans Affairs. And, you know, we just had uh, Veterans Day not too long ago, and I, you know, I appreciate the service of all the vets, but I don't think we need a Department of Veterans Affairs Uh, We didn't have a Department of Veterans Affairs until 1989, Um, and it employs 235,000 people. Now, I think a lot of those people are probably in the VA hospitals, Um, and so I don't want to close all those, although, I mean, (laughs) maybe they should be closed, but what I would do with the Department of Veterans Affairs, I I think it used to be part of the Defense Department. And so just put it back in there because there's, you know, if we have a defense department that takes care of the active duty personnel, well, they can also deal with, you know, the the retired uh, ex-military, right? Put it back in there. Maybe we can get some efficiencies. There's probably a lot of uh, duplications between those various agencies. So let's, let's, let's merge it. I'm not saying let's leave the veterans out in the cold but let's take care of it the way we took care of it before 1989, because we had plenty of veterans before 1989. I mean, we had both world wars. The Second World War ended in 1945. We had Korea in 1950, and then we had Vietnam in the 1960s, 1970s. We took care of all those vets without a Department of Veterans Affairs. So get rid of it. We can save some money. Now, the, the last department that we got Uh, was Homeland Security. Again, I want to get rid of the Department of Homeland Security and put it back where it belongs in the Defense Department. Because after all, what is the Defense Department defending? The homeland. I mean, that's what it's supposed to be defending. Unfortunately, we got troops in so many other countries, they probably forgot about defending the homeland. But that's what the Defense Department is supposed to do. We don't need a Department of Homeland Security when we have a Department of Defense. So get rid of the Department of Homeland Security and merge it back in 
to the Defense Department, which is where it belongs. So by the way, I'm looking now, I'm going down on this Wikipedia page. Yes, the War Department was the original name of the Defense Department, and it started in 1789. So it was one of the original departments, and then it was renamed, as I thought, to the um, uh, Defense Department. I'm also looking through here some other stuff. Let's get rid of the post office. How about that? I mean, why don't we privatize the post office? Why is the U.S. government still even involved in the mail? You know how much a stamp costs these days? I just actually had to buy a stamp. I hadn't bought one in a while. I went to the post office because I didn't even have a stamp. And, I, you know, it was like 65 cents, 67 cents, something like that. And the postman said, you know, they're, they're going to about to raise the price again. And, you know, one decent investment I guess I made was I did buy a bunch of forever stamps. I got those up in Puerto Rico. I didn't have any Connecticut. But I remember talking on my podcast, telling people that you could buy these forever stamps because they were better than keeping your money in dollars because at least you could use them to mail a letter no matter what the cost because they were an inflation hedge. And since you could always turn them in and get dollars, right? Stamps are almost like currency. It made more sense rather than put your money in a bank, just put it into forever stamps uh, because, you know, you can you know, always uh, mail a letter. But look, we got FedEx, we got uh, UPS, and they would do a much better job delivering the mail if they were allowed. See, the reason that Federal Express can't deliver non-emergency uh, mail is because they're barred by law. You see, the government has passed laws to protect the post office from competition. Why does it need protection from competition? Because if it had to compete, it couldn't survive. Even with all of the government resources, it still couldn't survive. You know, I've read stories about the post office coming down and cracking down on little kids who tried to deliver mail, you know, like a, like a postal route. Let's say you're a kid and you have a bicycle and you kind of want to set up a mail service where you want to take letters uh, from one house and, and, and bicycle it over to another house, right? And charge a little money for it. The U.S. government will put you out of business because you are illegally competing with the post office. So FedEx has an exemption if it's an emergency, right? If you got to get it there overnight or in two days, then you could, FedEx can sell you the, the letter. But they can't just say, hey, we'll sell you a letter and we don't know what it's going to get there. We'll do our best. But, you know, we're not going to guarantee it in two days. It might get there in two days, but we're going to charge. Look, it's illegal. They can't do it. So, you know what? We don't need the post office. It's a waste of money. It's a dying industry anyway. So let's get rid of that. You know, uh, I'm not even sure how many people are working at the post office. Although, you know, the post office now ends up doing a lot of the deliveries for Amazon. Uh, and so it's probably not even charging Amazon enough. I don't know. They probably, you know, Bezos probably got some kind of sweetheart deal. And he's pushing all that on the taxpayers. But the bottom line is there's so much that we can eliminate in the federal budget, right? It's not about waste, fraud, and abuse, right? Every politician wants to say, let's get rid of the waste, fraud, and abuse. Yeah, because right, nobody is against that. The problem is they can't even get rid of that because one person's waste, fraud, and abuse is somebody else's pork that they need uh, to get reelected. But we can't just say we're going to get rid of waste, fraud, and abuse, we got to say that, you know, we're going to cut the meat, not just the fat. We got to cut the meat out of the budget entitlements and all this other stuff. Anyway, a couple of other topics that I wanted to mention for today. 
kind of jotted down here. Um, oh, oh, one more thing I would like to eliminate too, which is part of the Defense Department, and that is the Space Force that was conceived by Donald Trump, which I was making a lot of fun of when we uh, launched the Space Force. Look, we already have or had four branches of the Defense Department. You got the Army, you got the Navy, you got the Marines, and you got the Coast Guard. You know, I'd already think that we could take the Coast Guard and combine it with the Navy. I mean, that would probably save some money. So I would be in favor of that. Let's take the Coast Guard and the Navy and put them together because, you know, the Navy is about boats. The Coast Guard is about boats, right? You're protecting the coast. What's the Navy for? To protect the coast. So let's let's just make one branch. That's got to save some money. And what do we need a Space Force for? We got an Air Force, right? Flying stuff, you know, Space, Air Force. Air Force can cover the Space Force. We don't need a whole new department uh, of the military to deal with space wars. Because first of all, there are no wars in space. There are no aliens, right? We're not fighting other planets. So all the wars are here on Earth, right? Now, to the extent that some of the earthly battles will be fought through space, okay, we don't need a space force for that, right? So let's just go back to, uh, to the Air Force so again, there are a lot of ways you got to go through this thing strategically because the country is broke. We've spent so much money. Why did we spend so much money? Because we could, because nobody gave a damn, because we can keep on going into debt and it didn't seem to have any negative consequences. We kept raising the debt ceiling. Nobody complained, bigger and bigger deficits. And so the politicians just believed like we could do whatever we want. It's like little children that are spoiled because they've never heard the word no. Anything they ask for, they get it. And so they ask for more and more and more. And somebody has got to impose some discipline. Unfortunately, eventually, it's going to be our creditors that are going to do it when we have a sovereign debt crisis and a a U.S. currency crisis. Another thing I wanted to talk about today is the government is obviously turning up the heat against crypto because... Two days ago, the um, SEC announced that they filed a lawsuit against Binance. Uh, And, you know, that sent Bitcoin tumbling, although it didn't go below 25,000. It got hit. And then today or this morning, the SEC announced another lawsuit that is filing against Coinbase. And the Coinbase lawsuit really you know, makes no sense if you think about the fact that Coinbase just went public a couple of years ago, right? So the SEC, you know, has to allow a company to go public, right? They they don't, they don't uh, pass upon the investment merits, right? So if you, if you invest in a, an IPO and it, and it fails, right? You can't say, oh, the SEC approved it. Therefore, you know, it's a good investment. And, you know, I lost all my money. It had the SEC's seal of approval. They don't do that. They don't tell you that, hey, this, this company is going to work out, right? They, they, that's part of the disclosures. You can't say that um, the investment's going to, you know, going to be good just because the SEC has approved it. They've just said it's legitimate. Uh, we've done all the things that the SEC requires, but you invest at your own risk. Because, you know, the SEC doesn't know about the market, 
right? Things can go wrong. The business model might not work. So just because the SEC is allowing the IPO, it doesn't mean that it stands behind uh, the investment merits of what is going public, right? But I think that if you are an investor and you buy an initial public offering where the SEC has given the company the green light to go public, how can that same SEC a couple of years later file a lawsuit against that company claiming that it, what it's doing, which is exactly what it said it was going to do in the prospectus that the SEC allowed, they're filing a lawsuit because Coinbase is doing exactly what it told investors and the SEC it was going to do before it went public. If what, the, if what Coinbase is doing violates securities laws, why didn't the SEC say something before it went public? I mean, they obviously looked over what they were doing. If they were trying to bring public any legal business, that was the time to say something about it. Because people invested in Coinbase, right? Yes, they didn't know if it was going to work out, but they at least thought what they were doing was legal. <laughs> they didn't think they were running an illegal operation. But that's exactly what the SEC is accusing Coinbase of doing. They're saying Coinbase is running an unregistered, unlicensed uh, securities exchange. Well, that's exactly what they were doing when they went public. They haven't changed their business model. It's the same business model that they reviewed when they approved the IPO. So you know, to say that you know the government is going to basically sucker all these investors, allow them to buy stock, and then come and pull the rug out from under them and say that um, you know it's illegal. Look, that's another department that we should get rid of, the SEC. I don't think we should have an SEC. I'm not sure how many people work there, but we can save a lot of money. Let's get rid of the SEC. You know, let's get rid of FINRA. You know, that's another regulatory body, which is not even part of the government. It's a private body that the government requires all brokers to be a member of. So I guess that wouldn't save the taxpayers any money because it's the investing public that has to pay the cost of FINRA. But the taxpayer does pick up the tab for the SEC. So if we're looking for ways of saving money, let's get rid of the SEC because clearly it's worthless. Because if what Coinbase is doing is so bad, why did they say so a couple of years ago? Why are they allowing the company to go public only to come back and, and, and say just a, um, what, two years later that what they're doing um, is, is wrong? Anyway, another another thing, a topic I just want to discuss, because there's a lot about the commercial real estate market. You know, I, I've talked about it. I've warned about it. So a couple of days ago, I went down to um, Yahoo Finance. I did an interview there. I, I, I'm not sure if they posted it yet, but I did this interview. And when I showed up at Yahoo Finance, the guy that was there gave me a tour of their office. Very beautiful um, office in a high-rise building, lovely building. And this is a Monday. I'm there Monday at about 2 o'clock. Right? It's not a holiday. It's just a regular Monday in early June. Right? Everybody is supposed to be at work, except nobody was there. The place was completely empty. I actually took a little video, and I posted it 
on my Instagram. Remember, I couldn't post the video on Twitter because I'm locked out of Twitter, but it's on Instagram, so you can check it out there. And by the way, again, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, follow me on Instagram and Facebook because that may be where I put content for a while uh, while I wait <laughs> for Twitter uh, to uh, to let me back on their, their platform. But I took this video of all of this empty office space. There wasn't a single person there. And the guy told me that before COVID, every desk that you see in that video had a person sitting there and working. It was very busy. There was this large cafeteria that they had just so, you know, a perk, because if you worked there, you got all this free food. Uh, there was nobody there. And he said they used to actually had chefs there that would cook the food. But since there was nobody showing up, you know, I guess they, they, they didn't need the chefs anymore. So they're not there. I mean, there's still some cold food there. I walked around. There was some stuff that I could have could have you know eaten. Uh, but there was nobody cooking anything because they didn't want to cook when there was absolutely nobody there. Um, but the point is, what is this office space worth? Because nobody is there. You've got all these companies that have all this office space and nobody is using it. And I was able to see through the glass four or five stories down. And I could look through the glass at all the other offices that were below Yahoo, right? Totally different companies. Those were all empty too. I mean, just looking through it, uh, empty desk after empty desk, nothing on the desks, nobody walking around in the hallways, just a complete ghost town. And this is before AI. I mean, people are working from home, but what about once we fully implement AI and people can use AI instead of employees? Obviously, if you're gonna have a bunch of AI, you just need one closet where you put all those servers and those CPUs or whatever it is that you need to, to run the, uh, to run the uh, um, AI, right? You don't need a nice big office with beautiful views and you don't need a cafeteria to feed your AI, right? They'll, they'll work 24 seven, right? You just need the power to keep them going. So what's gonna happen to this commercial real estate market when A, <laughs> you've got big increases in interest rates. You know, I'm here in the UK, short-term rates in the UK are over 5%. You know where they were a year ago? They were zero. <laughs> so they've had a huge move. And you know what they don't have in the UK? Fixed rate mortgages. Now that's going to residential. They don't have that. No, maybe people have five-year mortgages here. They don't have 30 years like, like we do in the US. So, but in commercial everywhere, nobody has 30 years really. It's a lot of short-term debt, five-year debt. A lot of that stuff is maturing. So you own a commercial <coughs> building. Your rents are collapsing. And even if they haven't collapsed because your tenants were locked into leases, what's gonna happen when those leases mature? Are your tenants going to renew? Of course not, they don't need the space. So rental income is going to collapse. At the same time, interest rates are going up. See, uh, commercial real estate is like a bond. The price of the real estate, the value is a function of interest rates. The cap rate is interest rates. So, if you have lower interest rates, then the, the present value of those rental streams is worth more. But you have a double-edged sword. If at the same time interest rates go up, your rental incomes go down, it is a perfect storm 
for the real estate market. And again, add to that the AI, which may increase or decrease rather the demand for commercial real estate on top of the fact that so many people are now working from home. Uh, you're going to see a crash uh, in the uh, commercial real estate market. Now, that also has broader implications for the banks and other lenders who are not going to get repaid because a lot of this commercial real estate has debt attached to it. And so the values are likely to fall so much that the losses are are not going to just accrue to the owners of the commercial real estate. They're going to accrue to the lender because once you've, you know, exhausted uh, the the equity. Let's say I bought a building and it was worth two hundred million, and I had a hundred million of debt. I was like leveraged, you know, fifty percent uh, debt. And so the bank probably thought that was a pretty secure loan, right? We've loaned $100 million on a $200 million office building. But if that office building is only worth $50 million, the owner doesn't lose $150 million. The owner just, used, the owner just used, loses $100 million, right? He walks away from the other 50 because that's the bank's problem, right? Because, you know, he's not going to he's not going to lose Uh, more than his equity because he just sends the bank the keys uh, to the building. The problem is the banks own loans on a lot of buildings, right? I might be a landlord. Maybe I own one building. Maybe I own two buildings. But that same bank may hold the mortgage on hundreds of buildings, thousands of buildings. So the losses for the banks are going to dwarf the losses for individual landlords of these properties. And now that has big implications for everybody because when the banks lose money, well, what about the depositors, right? They've, they're creditors of the banks. They've loaned their money to the banks. The banks took that money and loaded out uh, against commercial real estate that has now crashed. And so they no longer have uh, the, uh, the security uh, to make good these mortgages. So this whole thing is gonna implode. And what does that mean? More bailouts, more money printing, and, you know, when I was in Europe, I think it was two summers ago, two summers ago, I was looking at property. I didn't buy any, but I was kind of looking at it. And, and, and some friends of ours were looking at property, but really looking at property in Switzerland, in Italy. We were there for the summer and they were giving out loans. I'm not making this up. And they were arranging these loans through brokerage firms, but they were actually paying you. It was a negative interest rate to buy a property. I don't remember what it was, like negative 50 basis points. But of course, remember, in Europe, right, they had negative interest rates. So you were able to buy a property and get paid to do it. Now, you had to agree to put some money up with a broker-dealer. There was certain things that I had to do in order to qualify to get paid to buy a place with with a loan. but it was there. And I remember thinking that this is so absurd that the real estate market has got to be way out of whack to the extent that people are able to do this. How many people were buying properties simply because they were being paid to do it? And even if you weren't getting paid to do it, if you can buy it for free, no money down, um, then obviously there was a lot of demand that would not exist 
in a normal interest rate environment. Well, now we're beginning to have a normal interest rate environment. We don't even have one yet uh, anywhere in Europe or the United States because I still think that real interest rates are too low. Despite the fact that they've gone from zero to 5%, when interest rates were at zero, most people believed that inflation was below 2%. Now they can see it's at least 5%, if not more. So we still have negative real interest rates. In fact, in the UK, right, they're way negative, right? Because I think their year-over-year inflation rate is like 8% still or 10%, something crazy like that. And so they still have huge negative rates. Uh, But the markets are still distorted and interest rates still have a long way to go up. So the residential market is in trouble. The commercial market, that's something that we didn't have in in the 2008 financial crisis. That crisis was restricted to residential mortgage because that's where you had the adjustable rate mortgages, the zero down, the liar loans, right? All that cheap money was concentrated in residential real estate. This bubble not only includes residential real estate because rates were at zero for a decade, but it includes a gigantic commercial real estate bubble that has just run into the mother of all pins, right? Not just the pin of normalizing interest rates, but the workers that aren't going to the office and working from home and AI, which is just starting, which is going to eliminate more workers. So this is a much bigger financial crisis. It's a much bigger real estate crisis. Just if you focus in on the real estate aspect of it, this is worse than 2008, except real estate is only one part of it because you've got the entire stock market, you've got uh, credit cards, you've got student debt, uh, you've got everything that has been impacted by over a decade of 0% interest rates. The bubble that we have now that has only started to deflate and we've barely seen the, the early stages, right? We've barely seen the tip of this huge iceberg, right? When I said that, with subprime. When we saw subprime, I said, that's the tip of an iceberg. Everybody said, don't worry about it. It's contained. I would say, no, no, no. It's a tip of an iceberg. Well, what we've seen so far with these bank failures is a smaller tip of an even bigger iceberg. And so there's a lot more uh, left uh, that we're going to see once it rises uh, above the surface level. Anyway, that's it for today. I'm going to be heading back to uh, the U.S. early tomorrow morning. So I got to hurry up and pack and get to bed. And I will do my next podcast uh, back in the U.S. of A uh, from my summer home in Connecticut. Bye for now.